Hello, Horror Fanatics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast, Ooh, The Horror. Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address, oth at seriouslydecent.com, and find all bits of information like our episodes, social media, and email address as well at ohthehorrorpodcast.com. Very nice. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm I'm here. Yeah. Yep. It's it's been voted by both of us that after we're done recording this, we're gonna go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. If that would give any inclination as to what we were doing before we started recording this, sleeping. Yeah. We're gonna record this. I think I'm just gonna go right back to sleeping. It's not a bad way to live. It really isn't. No. Creative director Dean has already beat us to the punch. Shoot HR. That's H- all she does. HR is MIA and always getting like catnaps. I laugh at the term catnap because everybody says such oh, a misnomer. You had a little catnap, little five, little five, ten minute nap. No, a catnap is about mm, four 11, hours. 12 hours, give or take. It's four hours. <laughs> go to the box, do some business, come back. Another cat nap for four hours. Yeah. Eat, eat in between there. Mm-hmm. They are pro jock sleepers. They are. Like, I think you're a pro jock sleeper. And I as far as a human being's concerned, you are. Uh, your will yeah. to just say, I'm going to go to sleep. Close your eyes. Bang, gone. No. Yeah. I'm like a complex robot. I got to have this power down procedure and I've got to empty my thoughts. And- Wait. Now you're the robot because for years, because I could just close my eyes and go to sleep, I was the robot. Yeah. I don't know what you are. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, okay. I thought it was a robot, but. Not so much, no. Robots like a computer doesn't power down like that. Goes through this whole shutdown sequence. Yeah. Yeah, you don't do that. No. You just lights out, boom. Close my eyes, I go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What do we got today? We have the Suicide Forest. Yeah. Otherwise known as Okigahara. Okigahara. Yeah. Which, uh, for all intents and purposes, is going to be the forest. There you go. I might throw it in here and there, but <laughs> we'll just we'll just cut right to the gate and call it the forest. So, uh, well, I'll get my sources out of the way at the top. I read Suicide Forest. The Mystery of Okigahara, True Crime Stories by Roger Harrington. I kind of used that as a jumping off point. Mm. There was a Mental Floss article. I used Britannica.com, Yokai.com, Hayakumanagatari.com, and Mythology.net. So, woohoo! I used Okigahara, The Truth Behind Japan's Suicide Forest. Mm-hmm. Author is Tara A. Devlin, D-E-V-L-I-N. 
Highly recommend the book. Good stuff. Quick read. Yeah. 120 pager. Yeah. But it had a lot of good stuff. If if you were to just get one book to kind of give you a... Uh, a bird's eye view. A bird's eye view of everything and yeah. have a little knowledge of how the area developed, how all of the lore kind of got through there. And she points out other right. items of interest. Good book. Um, Mine was okay. I think what got me was there were like zero true crime stories in it. I mean, there were stories. Yeah, there was some in that one, but didn't get deep yeah so but i'm gonna be honest here we'll get into this a little later but it's people just going in and killing themselves yeah so there's really no kind of true crime element well no just there's no exotic story to it no it's really a sad story yeah and it's not you know well i'll read you guys are looking for feel goods this well, is, this is not the one. <laughs> we'll throw some humor in here. But yeah, no, I'll I'll throw the disclaimer out. I usually don't, but this is a kind of special topic. And this episode is definitely going to feature the discussion of suicide. Yeah. And this may be upsetting to some listeners. If you or anyone you know would like to talk to someone, please don't hesitate to reach out for help. If you actually visit uh, the website, www.i asp.info you can find contact for your information for your country or you call your local emergency number yes with that being said yeah this is basically a pretty sad oh a sad situation and really how it developed but before I learned way more than i ever wanted to know yeah i really thought i was kind of this is another topic where I thought I casually read enough to know a lot about this, but has yeah. more with some of these things. We do these deeper, yeah, deeper reads and deeper dives into stuff. I just look at some stuff. I'm like, man, I knew nothing about this place. Yeah. But for reals, basically I figured, you know, we were talking about a good way to kick this off. And I think the best way, you know, cause really the, the forest is the, is the story here. Yes. It's not really, well, that's what we're going to concentrate on. Yes. Is, so I figured I'd start out with how the forest actually got started. And again, it's uh, Okigahara. It's translated directly as field of green trees, but it goes by a more popular name of the sea of trees. Correct. It's located at the northwest face of Mount Fuji in the Yam- Yamanashi Prefecture. The Sea of Trees covers roughly 25 to 40 square kilometers of land, which is basically about 15 and a half to 25 square miles. It's big, but it's not not huge. huge. I mean, like, we have the Adirondacks up where we are in New York. Uh, That's that's not fair. No, but what I'm saying is, is that's massive. Yeah. So that's like for us, I think in the States, it's almost the equivalent of like a smaller state park. Okay. That's what I was trying to figure out a, a context. Out of country, I, I'm going to plead ignorance to the uh, first degree. Mm-hmm. But roughly 25 to 40 square kilometers. The forest actually doesn't really have any defined limits. So it's really actually difficult to say how big it is and where it starts and where it ends. 
It sits at an elevation of 900 to 1,100 meters above sea level. It's 2,900 to 3,600 feet, so it's up there. Temperatures will drop well below freezing during the cold winter months, and it's also known for this other reason. It's the most popular. They say it's one of the most popular, but I think it's actually probably one of the most popular suicide spots in the world. That's what makes this place its own, so to speak. Mount Fuji, of what it's on the side of, so to speak, has never erupted from its peak, which I thought was a pretty interesting piece of information. Every single eruption over the course of history has taken place on the slopes. It's never really gone off the top, so it's just been these side eruptions. Hmm. Yeah. Weird. And Mount Fuji sits at the junction of three plates. There's the Eurasian plate, the North American plate, and the Philippine Sea plate. And the Pacific plate pushes underneath all three of these plates. Got it. So it's almost like the perfect storm. It could be, yeah. There's a l- It's busy down there. So just because it hasn't mm. erupted. From the top. Yeah. I'm not saying it hasn't erupted ever. Right, it's, yeah, no, from the top. It's a lot of eruptions, actually. Is it safe to assume that, I mean, it's a ticking time bomb? I don't know. I don't have the credentials to answer that kind of information, but it's it's definitely with all of those, you know, those three plates and the one yeah. going underneath it. Like I said, it's a busy area down there. It's, it's a lot of activity. So Mount Fuji itself began life roughly about 700,000 years ago. And it was known as a, I guess, another mountain. It was uh, Sen Komatake, much smaller than the mountain that we know of now. But it erupted often, and balsa continued to pile until it formed a new mountain known as Komatake around 200,000 years ago. And I, you know me well, I could be butchering these names. Some of them I look up, some of them I don't, obviously. Yeah. This volcano remained active in roughly 100,000 years ago. The, con- the constant eruptions formed yet another mountain on top of the old ones. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was known as Old Fuji. Yeah. It's like the roads. Old Route 8. Old Route 8. <laughs> and then Route 8. You know, exactly. that's a, Old Route 12. Yeah. <laughs> I love how it's never new. You no. know, it's just the, the regular. <laughs> yeah. So further eruptions continued, and around 10,000 years ago, this is where New Fuji formed in the mountain that we know of today, yeah. Mount Fuji itself. So Mount Fuji is actually several mountains built on top of each other like bricks. Got it. And this creates numerous spots on the slopes where the crust is much thinner than other locations. And when volcanic activity starts kicking up inside the mountain, these are these kind of weak pressure points Mm -hmm. that are the first areas to blow out. Right. So, uh, Mount, oh, let's see. I had that written down twice. I'm a genius. (laughs) It was so important. Yeah. You got to stress that stuff. (laughs) So the eruption that actually created the forest is, is known as uh, the Great Eruption of Jogan. And this area this era lasted from 859 to 877, with the first eruption on Mount Fuji taking place in June 
864. So this was the first time in modern history that an eruption of this scale had ever taken place on Mount Fuji. And less than 40 years after the eruption, Japanese history texts completed in 901 mentioned that there were three earthquakes before Fuji exploded. And then flames shot 60 to 70 meters, which is basically the equivalent of 200 to 230 feet in the air. Wow. So basically like these curtains of fire just roaring out of this mountain, destroying everything in their path. The lava measured 1,000 degrees Celsius, which is 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit. And basically just like the people, the animals, forests, everything erased. And through a series of eruptions, everything became covered in this hardened lava. And what's it, you know, hardened, you know, the lava itself, the hardened lava can't hold water. Mm-hmm. However, moss developed on the hardened lava. Right. And moss holds water. Correct. And Mount Fuji ceased erupting and life just started slowly returning to the area. Marine life returned to lakes and people set up resettling the surrounding areas. Seeds found their way into the moss, most likely from passing birds. And then the first trees began to grow and nature found a way. Just, it'll forever be in my heart. For those of you playing the drinking game, drink for every movie reference. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, don't do that. No. (laughs) You'll have to have your stomach pumped. (laughs) There are so many trees packed densely together that even during midday, it's dim, dark, and full of shadows. Mm Mm-hmm. And the ground is very uneven due to the hardened lava floor. Moss grows over everything, and the forest floor is riddled with unseen holes, cave openings, and tunnels. Many of these are hidden beneath rotten branches and dead trees, and this makes maneuvering around the forest very difficult. Bless you, bud. Bless you, creative director, Dean. You all right, bud? Oh, Bless, bless you. Bless you. Wow. That was uh, that was intense. See, he has allergies too. Yes, he does. It's that season. So the trees that grow in the forest now are predominantly pines and broadleaf trees. And winter reaches below freezing thanks to its elevation on Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. But in the summer, it's very, very humid. And what this causes is the trees to rot and fall apart. And the moss and dirt cover over the hardened lava is only about two centimeters high. It's a little over three quarters of an inch. Yeah. So the roots have nowhere to go but outward. Yep. And that just creates this crazy terrain. Yes. Massive terrain. So it just makes it even more dangerous to be walking around because you have these roots snaking all over. and, Mm -hmm. And you also have a lot of fall trees due to the extreme humidity and shallow root bases. Right. So it's common that trees only get to go for a a certain amount of years. I want to say it's almost like 10 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's all a tree can do. And then it'll just tip over due to the shallow base and the humidity. And it just creates this crazy, crazy environment. Yes. So what's odd is the surroundings of the forest. So a short distance away is a giant amusement park called Fuji Q Highland. It's famous for its... Many roller coasters and people come from all over the country to visit it. 
A few miles to the southwest is another theme park called uh, Fuji Subaru Land. The lakes surrounding the forest are famous for fishing and camping, seeing a high volume of tourists during warmer months. The two most popular <laughs> tourist destinations within the forest is the Fugaku Wind Cave and the Narusa Narusa Ice Cave. So basically what's neat about the Wind Cave is there's always wind going through there. Weird that they would name uh, the Wind yeah. Cave after but the wind that goes through Just the it. way it's designed with these these tunnels, mm-hmm. it, it blows wind and ice freezes on the outside. Now the right. other, the Ice Cave, again, there's Wait, ice there. I bet there's ice. Year round. Nice. Yes, yes. So it could be really hot and humid outside, but you go through this cave and there's just, it's all ice inside of it. So Nature's freezer. When nature finds a way. <laughs> so uh, during the holidays and weekends, this area becomes particularly crowded. It's not uncommon to see tourists and school groups around. Yep. And for many... The last convenience store on the way to the forest is the 7-Eleven on National Highway 139. And this means that it's also the last convenience store for many visitors who plan to never leave again. Plastic bags bearing the 7-Eleven logo are often found close to bodies discovered in the forest. Unlike the usual bright 7-Eleven colors you're used to, this particular store has a black logo. And what do people tend to buy from 7-Eleven as their final meal? Before entering the forest, bags discovered near the bodies have revealed energy drinks, cigarettes, fried chicken, and full bento meals, often uneaten and still in their wrapping. So the big question, why do people go there to die? How does that, how did this all? I don't know that we have an answer to that question. Really? However, like I said, I used the Suicide Forest book as my jumping off point. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's a couple factors that really need to be considered with regard to the high incidence of suicide, not only in the forest, but in Japan itself. Yeah. So, one, Japan has a long tradition of suicide. Death at one's own hand doesn't carry the stigma that it does here in the States and elsewhere. One of the traditions, seppuku, also known as harikari, literally belly-cutting, is a form of ritual suicide by disembowelment, originally reserved for samurai as part of their code of honor. It was also practiced by other Japanese people during the Shawa period to restore honor to themselves and their families. So the proper method was to plunge a sword into the left side of the abdomen, draw the blade laterally across to the right, then turn upward. Women of the samurai class also committed ritual suicide called jigai. Instead of slicing the abdomen, they sliced their throats with a short sword or dagger. So That's gangster. There Holy. are two forms, voluntary and obligatory. Voluntary evolved during the wars of the 12th century, and it was used by warriors who were defeated in battle, and they chose to avoid the dishonor of being captured by their enemy. So sometimes also used to show loyalty to a lord. Mm -hmm. So if their lord passed, they would kill themselves to follow their lord into death or to protest against a policy of a superior or of the government or to atone for failure in their duties. And there have been instances of voluntary seppuku 
the most widely known, involved a number of military officers and civilians who committed the act in 1945 as Japan faced defeat at the end of World War II. Another was in 1970 when the novelist Mishima Yukio performed the act on himself as a protest against what he believed to be the loss of traditional values in the country. So obligatory refers to the method of capital punishment for samurai to spare them the disgrace of being beheaded by a common executioner. And this was prevalent from the 15th century until 1873 when it was abolished. Yeah, it's pretty much a, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out my way. It, it, very much yeah, so, yeah. yes. Well, um, and there was a lot of honor in it, too. Exactly. Right? So, like, it it's clearly states it's part of their honor code. Yeah. So, number two, Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. 2008 saw 2,645 recorded suicides in January of um, 2009 for the previous year. This was a 15% increase from the previous year. This was due to the global finance crisis. And in 2011, the executive director of a suicide prevention hotline told Japan Times, callers most frequently cite mental health and family problems as the reason for contemplating suicide. But behind that are other issues such as financial problems or losing their job. So three, let's get into ubasute which is a brutal form of euthanasia that roughly translates to abandoning the old woman. It's an uncommon practice and resorted to only in times of desperation or famine where the family would lessen the amount of mouths to feed by leading an elderly relative to a mountain or similarly remote and rough area to die, not by suicide, but by means of dehydration, starvation, or exposure. Some claim this was just folklore. Regardless, the forest has long been associated as a site for abandonment. And then there's the there's a ghost story of an old man and a little girl that supposedly haunt the forest. You see them holding hands throughout in various locations. And the story goes, he was dropped there by his family and his granddaughter took him into the forest to play a game essentially was the guys. And she had a backpack with a flask of alcohol, pills, and string. And she led him into the forest, gave him the flask, and he drank the alcohol. And being he was so frail and thin, the alcohol affected him greatly. It was at this time the granddaughter realized she had forgotten to tie the string to the tree at the start of the trail to follow back. She was so far in the forest that she could not find her way back and ended up further in the dark forest. As she was running to try and find her way out, she tripped and hit her head, and they had passed out, but she died. Mm, yeah. And she is seen with her grandfather in the forest as they are together forever in death, and they are frequently seen in a cave, which is where she supposedly fell and hit her head. Mm. Yeah. So there are two novels that popularize the dark tradition of suicide, Seicho Matsumoto's 1960 novel, Kiroi Jukai, where a heartbroken lover retreats to the sea of trees to end her life. And this has become a seminal dark influence on the culture. Also included is the complete suicide manual that dubs the forest as the perfect place to die. And both books are commonly found in the abandoned possessions of the deceased. That was a weird thing I read, too, where that book, yeah. the last one, the manual, yeah. they say that's the most common book. 
Yep. And I don't know if it's the most common item, but they say it's common there. And it, yeah, I mean, it's almost like our, um, uh, you know, our. To add to the I, drinking game. I don't want to say assassins, but like mm. the catcher in the rye being yeah. among. Yeah. Those that are. Well, I was going to add another thing to the drinking game. It's kind of like the handbook for the recently deceased. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Number five is there is a belief that the forest is haunted by ghosts, specifically Uri, which translates to faint or dim soul or spirit. So most cases, how they appear depends on how they died. They retain the features and clothing they wore when they died and were buried, and usually they were wearing the white burial kimonos or uniforms of fallen soldiers. Occasionally, they have bloody wounds indicating how they died. The hair is usually long and, dis- and disheveled, obstructing their face. Think the chick from The Ring? Yeah. She was very much influenced by the Uri. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Like, she, that, she, her representation yeah. was directly inspired by mm-hmm. this. So their hands hang limply at the wrists, are translucent and only faintly visible. They are capable of invoking powerful curses and usually haunt a specific place usually where they died or were buried and sometimes their killer or their loved ones is who they haunt they are stuck here until they can be put to rest they may require their killer be brought to justice recovery of their lost body or just to get a message to a loved one and some can't accept that they are dead and haunt their families, bringing misfortune and unhappiness to mm. their families' lives. A yuri can be created if the funeral and post-funeral rites are not performed. And that's the most important feature because of those who choose the forest yeah. as their place for their demise, it's very likely that their body will not be recovered. Well, that's a big reason why they go there. Yeah, but... Because they also go with no ID. Right. They go with no yep. wallet, generally. If there is a wallet, it's empty. Yes. Uh, there's no kind of identifying belongings or So anything. essentially, they are 100%... Well, we'll get into it. So this prevents the soul from being reunited with their ancestors and becoming a family guardian spirit. As you can imagine, the number of people who have died in the forest does not afford the deceased this final step. Given how dark and unkempt the forest is, many bodies are never recovered as they are consumed by the flora and fauna and become a part of the forest's life cycle. Which begs the question, if you know you're going to journey to this particular forest to end your suffering in this life, why would you do so knowing the odds of your family recovering recovering your body to ensure you receive the proper burial rites is almost non-existent. This ensures you continue your suffering in the afterlife in purgatory. You haven't resolved or ended anything. Your suffer actually continues and may even be worse in the afterlife. It is said that when the rangers find bodies during their searches of the forest, which they routinely do mm-hmm. to prevent the suffering from a dishonorable death, they carry the bodies to the nearest police department where they are held in a special room for these corpses for this specific purpose. 
and an officer sits with them overnight as it is believed if a corpse is left unattended, the soul or spirit may scream throughout the night and it may also rise in search of company. So another possible reason is kaiden, kai meaning weird or strange or mysterious and dan meaning to discuss or talk. So this is kind of like a ghost story. Yeah. And it's a verbal tale shared over time. And this is a separate genre in Japan, not to be confused with horror. It's more in the realm of strange and unusual. So this gets me to a story from the book. And I tried to confirm, like I tried to find it in another source. Yeah. I was unable to do so. Well, it's tough, too, because sometimes they have to change. Right, exactly. So the story goes that it's Kentaro, and he was 16 years old when he uh, started working, and he worked as a prison guard and was tasked with executing prisoners by beheading. Yeah. So by the time he was 18, he had executed 50 prisoners. He learned how to cut them efficiently so that they died quickly and how to hang them so that their death was quick and without failure. He was proficient in torture to gain the information that they required from the prisoners, and some suffered so much that they died of extreme fatigue. By 25, he was one of the best-known executioners in Japan. His skills were requested across the country, and he was sent to southeast, southeast Japan to execute a prisoner, Matsu, who was imprisoned for infidelity. However, he was unable to kill her when the time came, as she was as he claimed, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. And he was unable to kill her for several years, for which she was very grateful. The emperor, however, demanded her death as she was no longer useful to him. Kentaro agreed to end her life as long as he could marry her on the day she was to die. The emperor agreed. And they married in the forest at the base of Mount Fuji. In their vows, Kentaro promised they would meet again in death. They kissed, and he placed the noose about her neck and suffocated her as painlessly as possible. Years passed, and he became the most famous executioner in Japan and earned a fortune, yet only longed for the time of his death. He retired at 60 and longed to join um, join Matsu in death. However, the years continued to go by, and death still did not come for him. At 88, he tried to overdose on medication, but awoke the the next morning unharmed. At 94, he tried to slice his heart from his chest, but he felt his heart still belonged to Matsu and was not his to remove. Yeah. At 100, he traveled to the site of his wife's death, a tree at the base of Mount Fuji, and attempted to hang himself, but the rope kept breaking. As he laid on the ground after his three failed suicide attempts, he was visited by a white figure who told him he was the luckiest man in the world. Kentaro, having witnessed death so often in his career, had become a messenger of death itself and immune to its effects. He had been cursed with immortality. Knowing he would live forever, he told the figure he did not want this, but wanted to pass on as he had a promise to keep. The apparition faded away. He has been sitting atop her grave for no one knows how long, hoping for death to take him, but death never comes for him. Wow. Yeah. So I couldn't find the most famous executioner in Japan. 
I couldn't find yeah. Executioner. That's a cool story. And anyways. Executioner's Bride. I couldn't. It's a sad like, story. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> well, I remember my great grandfather, he lived in 96, and he used to joke around the whole time that because he used to live in New Jersey before yeah. he came to northern New York. And he always used to joke around and say, God, forgot that I moved from New Jersey and he's still looking for me. Right. It's a weird thing when age gets to a certain point. Yeah. And I don't know, like I always, I always talk about that. I don't know if I'd want to be around that long. Well, if the story is to be believed, this dude is still around. Well, yeah, but I mean, just in general. Yeah. It's a tough, that's like, like reading all this stuff, it really kind of puts you in that situation where you just look and, you know, it's, it's a weird deal. Yeah, I don't want to be like, over 100. Yeah, like that age. I mean, you're disconnected from everything. Everything, yeah. Everything. Yeah. Everything you used to know doesn't exist anymore. Right. Just so out of everything. Yeah. And you get, like, in the situation my great-grandfather was, all his friends died. Yeah. He has nobody. You know, my he grandmother. Used to, he used to talk to me. Yeah. I was, like, it's just twerp great-grandkid. Yeah. Didn't know anything didn't matter thought he knew everything you know but i mean we had great conversations and stuff i mean but yeah i just look back it's like yeah i don't want to i don't know if i want to go that kind of distance my grandmother (laughs) wasn't even that old i think she was in her early 80s when she passed but she had outlived all of her friends and family yeah like there was no one left aside from us yeah to attend her funeral well and what i found interesting about the forest as well is a lot of it was people like financial hardship was a big one. Yes. That really was. Do you have a little extra there? Oh yeah. Okay. We'll go for it. So go on my rant. (laughs) Number seven is Shinigami, which are a grim reaper or death bringer, death spirit. And these are gods, supernatural spirits that invite humans to death. So they're believed to, inhabit the forest they are sometimes described as monsters helpers and creatures of darkness it is their job to invite mortal humans to death they're supposedly invisible except to those who are close to dying themselves when seen they never have the same look or shape and according to legend they work in pairs and appear when it is the person's appointed time to die they will then invite them over the threshold between life and death They describe death as a candle burning, and when the flame of the candle burns out, it's time to pass on to the next world. If the death spirit is at the foot of the bed, then you as the person know that your time is up. If the death spirit is at the head of the bed, it's not their time to pass. Mm. So those who believe in the Shinto religion believe in the Shinigami. They are believed to inhabit the forest, and if you make eye contact with one, Even if suicide was not your intention, you will take your life. Or if some of the stories are to be believed, if you won't take your life, they will take it for you. Yeah. They are described as having a sickle, you know, think of our Grim Reaper. Grim Reaper, yeah. And they can apparently uh, kill you to fulfill their work, which is, I mean, it's not great. No. (laughs) So... <clears throat> the eighth and final option here is Akateko, which is a form of yokai. 
And this is the form of a disembodied red hand belonging to a child, usually found hanging from a honey locust tree. They fall down from a tree as people pass underneath. And they are sometimes accompanied by the figure of a beautiful girl of about 17 or 18 standing under the tree. And when she is seen, they are struck by fear. It's not clear, however, the relationship with the Akateko and this woman figure, if they are part of the same apparition or if it's another spirit entirely. And they too supposedly inhabit the forest. So there's stories within the book for the Grim Reaper. Mm -hmm. And there's also a story of the Akateko. So essentially just about everything that I have listed here has been refuted or there's a story about it or stories Associated. I also heard forest. of a story that uh, there's many that claim there's a old lady, uh, a, a spirit of an old woman that goes around in the forest and is basically trying just to get people to stop. Maybe. You know, and she, because I guess it's a, a spirit that's protecting her son that killed himself there. There's Possibly. a lot of stories around there's there. There's so many stories. But here's the thing. Like, if you look at this forest and you read of it on its own, like, they say, with the down limbs and the growth, and there's just growth everywhere. And I have some pictures that I found online that I'm going to put on the Facebook group page just to kind of show exactly what this looks like. And the pictures are pretty revealing of the fact that they basically say you walk 20 yards in and you really don't know where you are. You can lose your bearings right. very quick in there. So, so it's a common practice to tie a rope to mm-hmm. yourself and to, you know, one end to yourself and the other to a tree at the start of the trail. Yeah. So that if you do get lost. Well, that and they have search parties yep, that actually go through there. They do. On a daily basis to yes. look for bodies. Yes, they do. And they use those lines. Yep. So if they find somebody, because here's the other thing. There's no cell signal in there. No. You could use a, uh, like a GPS tracker, but like your cell phone, if you were to walk in there with a cell phone, you get no service. Right. And you actually got to leave the like quote unquote park. Right. And get over by like where the caves are Mm -hmm. to actually get a cell signal. So what's interesting is the cops show up there every day. Yes. They literally, I mean, just... They have cops that go there every single day, either from reports or, you know, somebody that has found something now. And that's where the book I was reading, it was a little contradictory because they were talking about how many bodies are are found and stuff like that. But then they say, well, you can walk around and not see anything. It was back and forth with it. Right. And they didn't really want to sit on a, a certain side. Right. You know, and just say, no, this is really the reality of the ground. So they talked a little bit of mo. About the most. So I'm not going to say whether you walk in there and find a ton of bodies. Right. Or you could walk in there and find nothing. Because out of all the sources that I did read on the internet and this book Mm -hmm. that I read from, it was both. Right. And they both said it at the same time in like the same reading. Yeah. So it was hard to digest in that that sense. Yes. However, there is a protocol 
when you go in there and you find a body and you have to have that, they recommend that string. Yep. And you go back, do the call, and you wait for the cops to come. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is the cops take about 30 minutes to get there. Right. 30 to 40 minutes. It's not like they have someone right, right yeah. there. And if they're involved in something else, that's going to take some time. Right. So it literally could be like an hour. Mm-hmm. So the issues that they do come around with is if they find somebody, it might not be until the next day. Right. Because of the terrain so bad, they really have two methods of removing bodies from there. So what's interesting is in the summer, I'm just going to kind of patch back to this, but yeah. the summer it's really hot and humid. And another draw for people to go there is because they don't want to be identified. It's not as much being found. They hope they d- they're not found. Mm-hmm. And this is where kind of the forest has become popular for this because the trees fall. Right. And it could uncover, it could cover up remains and you just never know someone was there. Right. Yes. Now, the other end of it too is where it's hot and humid in the summer. The bodies decompose basically in about 30 days. Right. It's about a month. Yep. Between the heat and the animals yep, and insects picking yep. away. Someone could die there 30 days later. It's a, it's just skeleton. Right. So if the police, if it's a, a skeleton, they'll gather the remains and one officer could leave with all the remains. Right. But if it's a newer find. Right. An intact corpse. Yeah. Then they actually got to put it on a stretcher. Yep. You know, put it in a body bag, put it on a stretcher, and the terrain's so rough, they need extra officers to help. Yes. And it becomes like this five-person affair yep. to get a body out. Now, you have people walking around looking into all this, so they say what you find the most in this forest is those strings. Yes. And they're like, uh, I think they're streamers or something like that. And they have a special name for it. Over there, I, I can't remember what it was called, but uh, but basically that the whole forest is littered with those strings and streamers. Yes, and it's catch twenty two. The big problem the officers have here is people just keep coming. Yes, regardless of what they do. Yes, and the two publications that you mentioned, and then there was another publication, and I don't have that written down unfortunately in the books downstairs. I'm not grabbing it, but those three publications are solely responsible. Yes. Basically, they've come right out and said, if it wasn't for these publications, people wouldn't be doing this, at least there. Right. Yeah. I mean. They can't say the, the whole suicide thing. It's a different deal. The manual calling it like the perfect place to die. Well, it is. I mean, yeah. It really in, is. In a way, but I don't understand because most of Japan practices the, the Shinto religion, mm-hmm. wherein you have to have these burial rites. And it's it's not just the burial itself. Like, there are certain prayers that need to be said. Yeah. Like, there's a whole process. And if you don't do that, you know, that does not bode well for But now you're getting spirit. into another end of the culture that there's the family and the family name. And if anything tarnishes the family name, this is why suicide's high in, in those cultures to begin with. There's so much pressure to be holding the name up. It's not, we don't have that here in the States. No. We just don't have it. Where the pressure's so high, and if there's anything that dishonors the family name, it goes into this other direction. Right. 
and they don't want to be known. They don't want to be found. They don't. That's why they go in there with no ID. It's why they go in there with no evidence that it's themselves because they don't want their family to be linked to that type of act. So it's this downhill kind of stream of someone who loses fortune or just doesn't have any money. Right, yeah. They're an outcast of something, you know, or they're just too much to worry about. The old woman. Right. The elderly type yeah. of thing is just too much of a burden. Yep. So what you have is this, it is, it's a perfect storm or like a perfect area for that. You have the hard to reach area yeah. of finding somebody. You have the, the trees that tip over right. all the time and could easily conceal remains and never see them. Mm-hmm. They say they don't really have like an estimated amount because it just the terrain's crazy. Right. And now the tough part is, and this is cause and effect 101. Mm-hmm. The reason this has become so popular is because people don't want to burden anyone. But the people that are burdened are in the surrounding areas because this all costs money. Yeah. This all costs money to have police yeah. go in there. They have rangers. And yeah. rangers and, and the retrieval. And then they do carry out. They have to do an investigation, see if they uh, can identify the remains. Yep. If they do identify the remains, they got to contact the family. Yep. There's the transportation of the bodies. There's the the uh, funeral sessions or whatever yeah. kind of religious things they're gonna they're gonna pull off. All of this costs money. Yeah, and it's costing them actually a lot of money. Yeah, and it's become a burden. And I really, out of everyone in this whole thing, I really feel sorry for the police department in this whole thing because they're the only ones that are kind of. I can't say the only one's doing something about this because there's a lot of people that there's volunteers that go through and they yeah. look for it and they have their own reasons, whether it's a humanitarian type thing or they're just really into that kind of stuff and that everybody to each their own, you mm-hmm. know, they, they all have these different reasons, but they're identifying the bodies. That's it. That's all they're doing. Yeah. There's this whole other mechanism outside of it. That's pulling the people in, storing the bodies either yeah. cremating or burying or whatever whatever yeah. whatever they will do and it costs a lot of money and these I was in the book I was reading they've tried everything yeah signs they've tried basically having people walk around so it's busy yep so it gives the the appearance yeah of just yeah you know, this you can't isn't be by yourself this isn't a bad place to do this you know yeah. you, you don't have that alone yes thing they also had people that were walking around purposely looking for people that were out of place. Yeah. So basically they even tell you, and this, I think is this still goes on to this day there. I might be wrong on that, but it was going currently for a while. If you walked in there and, you know, say you and I had a backpack hiking stuff, people are going to be like, yeah, no, you're not really that much of a, a concern. You know, you're here to just hang out yeah. and hike through. But if you're someone in like a business suit yeah. with like no bags mm-hmm. or anything like that and you're walking through there, they're actually going to talk to them. Yes. And they have like a very weird kind of like a customer service uh, first like approach, you know, where yeah. they talk to them and, hey, how's your day going and blah, blah, blah. And they just won't leave them. Right. And they're trying to use this method to, to dissuade, to the... dis- dissuade yep. it. And none of it works. They're just people keep going. 
And then they actually had a lid on it at one point because the books came out and there was kind of mass media and mass media was doing yep. it. And then there was a couple movies and yeah. and and it was getting to that point where things were looking good. Everything was moving down and then social media comes out. Yeah. And it basically blew up even more than it was than before. what it was yep. before. And they're just at a loss right now. Yeah. They're at a loss at what to do. Because now it's become a worldwide suicide destination, which is crazy to me. That is crazy. It's just crazy to me. And it all goes back to the point where I say, like, if somebody wants to kill themselves, they're going to kill themselves. Yeah. There's a lot that you can help. And there's a lot that are are reaching out. Or there's a lot that that's all they need is a conversation. Right. And just someone to talk to and, and someone to sit there and just basically listen to all those issues and and talk with them in a way that you know hey look yeah that is tough but you're a really nice person you're good at this you're good at that you know and and just build that rapport with someone to let them know that they are valuable and if anything valuable to themselves you know that's i think that's where we're in a problem now overall on the suicide end because people that get linked you know, people that are looking into the suicide bit lose value. They've lost value in themselves. Mm-hmm. It's really at the cornerstone of it, at least in my opinion. And yeah. I've had, I've gone in some dark areas in my life. I'm not proud of it, but it's where I've been and, and I'm in a different place now. And I look back at that person back then and I had no value for myself at all. And the thing is, is you could have somebody tell you you have value, but telling is it's not enough. There no. has to be that connection. And that's when it turned for me was when I just made that connection of just one thing. For me, it was music. It was being a good drummer and and just being into music and having that love for music. And I realized that music will always be there. Mm-hmm. It's always there for me. And and I can I can grab that. And, and if I were to leave all of this, I wouldn't be able to enjoy that possibly. There's a risk there. Right, yeah. And I, and I just clung on to that attachment. And then the next thing you know, other valuable things come into your life. Mm-hmm. And then you have the option to keep them or disregard, you know, discard them. Right. And that's all up to you. But if you refuse to think you have value... That's a dangerous proposition you're putting for yourself. Yes. Because there's just nothing worth being around for. Yes. And and unfortunately for people, they can't crawl out of that for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I say it all the time in the other episodes earlier, but it's feeding the beast. Yes. In my opinion, the more you feed that beast, the bigger that beast gets a hold of you. Right. And the stronger it gets and, and the weaker you feel. Mm-hmm. And the less you feed it, the the weaker it gets and, and the less it has a hold on you. But it's a it's a really tough scenario. And they're they've been dealing with this now for decades. Yeah, but I mean, again, I get back to they know in the culture what a URI is. Uh-huh. And they know that if they kill themselves in this forest. Their odds of becoming a URI are pretty astronomical. Mm-hmm. So now 
you've done this act, which is supposed to end your earthly suffering. So instead, you pass up your uncomfort slash earthly suffering for an eternal suffering in the afterlife. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with, like, say, a Catholic. Yeah. You know, I mean, a Catholic commits suicide. That's basically, like, the unforgivable sin. Sin. Yet people do it. I just... Like I said, you, you get wrapped up into it. You bring that invitation of a dark force into your life, and it can consume you and eat you alive. People don't like to talk about this stuff. Yeah. They really don't. They like to talk about it on the surface, and they like to talk about it in either the form of, like, say, a depression or uh, and, and even depression. It's a loaded deal. You could get depressed by just taking the wrong medication, though. Yeah. And it could alter the chemical biology of your brain and you're broken. Yeah. And here's the thing. You might not even be able to crawl out of that. Right. Because now your biology is broken. Yeah. It's not a spiritual thing anymore. You right. could wake up trying to be the most positive person in the world, but you are just chemically busted up in your brain. Mm-hmm. And there's just no way out of it. But reverse that whole bit before you took the medication. Why were you taking this medication? Should you have been taking this medication? Right, yeah. Did you read enough about it? Did you hear about these stories, but you didn't want to believe them? Because Mm -hmm. you thought nothing, here's the common statement, nothing can get worse than this. And that's probably the worst statement you can ever say in your entire life. I don't care what it's about. Whether it's about a bad cup of coffee, nothing could be worse than this cup of coffee. Wrong. There's another bad cup of coffee that makes that look like the best coffee you ever had. And it's the same thing, but people make those statements and they get stuck Mm -hmm. in that area where they just think this is the worst I could possibly be at. And like my dad gave me the greatest advice when I was a young worker. There's always someone that's going to come along and just kick ass at the same job. You know, you're replaceable. Yes. You know, you're you're 100% replaceable. There's not only someone that can do your job, but there's probably someone who can do your job way better than you. Yes. And that's like learning an instrument too. You know, I mean, I played the drums for years. Mm-hmm. Long, long time. And I consider myself a good drummer. But I know I can't consider myself a great drummer because I've been around great drummers. Yeah. And I just look and I'm like, holy shit, I'm never going to be that good. Mm-hmm. I'm 45. I've been playing the drums for basically 35 years mm-hmm. in total. And I just, I know I'm never going to be that good. And it could be someone in their 20s or 60s or whatever. Yeah. Just fucking great at it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, uh, and, and if you take that kind of stuff personal, that brings the invitation of having this dark force in your life. I believe in that. You and I will go back and forth and not talk about, like, I've never seen a ghost and I'm a little skeptical on the whole idea. Yeah. But I definitely believe in a dark force that can come in and take you over. Yes. I really do believe that. And that's why I'm open to the idea of ghosts. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm not saying I don't. I just haven't seen it. Right. And it hasn't affected me. But I do believe in dark forces. I do believe in a a darkness entity can come in and just consume you like a void. Or like a yeah. black hole and just suck everything out of you mm-hmm. one way or another, either through your mind and your spirit or actually physically through your own motions and make, you know, 
putting you in a position of doing that. That I do believe in. I think that's what draws people to this forest. They're having a great life one day, and then a series of bad things came through. And now mm-hmm. you have a culture that is very deep on the family legacy mm-hmm. and the family name. And now you're just ashamed to the family. You're ashamed to yourself. You're ashamed to everything. And you don't pay attention to that idea that you're suggesting of this idea of an eternity of suffering suffering and struggle. Yeah. Again, it's that dangerous statement. I think it really is. It's the most dangerous statement in the world. Nothing could be worse than this. I yeah. hear people say that, and I'll just whip my head around all the time. I'm like, you have no, no idea. idea. No idea. And that's even if you are someone that's, you know, in a really, really bad state, in a really bad, you know, there's always there's always another bottom right, that yeah. you can come crashing down. And the worst part is, is now you're even further up. Yeah, to crawl out, and that's uh, that's a tough thing. And you see it, you know. I, I I could go on a tirade with this, and I am, but it's like with addicts. Mm-hmm. It's like not everybody walked. There's a very minimal amount that just walked right into like methamphetamine and heroin. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a very small amount. It starts with this whole thing of just ah, uh, I'm going to do this for fun, or if you're just having a bad day and you're around an addict, somebody's going to be like, hey. You should do this. It'll make you feel better. Yeah. And there it starts. I hate to sound like that person. I know me 20 years ago, I hated hearing that person. Oh, it's a slippery slope. It is. Yeah, (laughs) it is a slippery slope. And I'm not saying that just with drugs. It's the same thing with ideas. When you invite something in, you give it permission. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it it can. And it will take over. And it claims ownership of you. Yeah. And you are no longer... I think a big question that people have to ask themselves today, because this is what helps me a lot, is are you in control of your life right now or is something controlling you? Right. Because that's what got me to quit smoking cigarettes. I remember one day I just looked at cigarettes and I said, these things are ruling me. Yes. I live my life around them. Mm-hmm. I prevent myself from doing certain things because I have to go outside and smoke a cigarette. Mm-hmm. I'm spe- I was spending less time with you because I wouldn't smoke in the house, so I'm yep. outside in like February. Yeah. 10 below weather. Oh, I got to have a cigarette. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do I have to have one? Yeah. And and I just started looking at it, and my big thing was is if, if times got really rough and I had these taken away from me, mm-hmm. how would I act? Right. What and would the impact what be? What would the impact be? And what scared the hell out of me was is I'd sit there and I remember saying to myself, I would lose my mind if I didn't have these. Yeah, that is frightening. It's very frightening. And it's, it was the same thing with caffeine. It was the same yep. thing with drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that was a weird situation because I'm sitting there saying, I would lose my mind if I didn't have these. I don't know what I would be. It'd be hard to function. Mm-hmm. So what did I do? I took it out. Yeah. So the one thing that was scaring me to death, I actually embraced in on my own terms, though. Right. And that's how I looked at it. it was, this is my own terms. This is my own choice mm-hmm. of pulling this away. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let my environment dictate dictate this for yeah. me to all of a sudden say caffeine's no longer available. Now you got to go cold turkey without a choice. Yeah. And that's I think that's a big question that everybody has to ask them, themselves is, 
do you have things that control you and pull you? Right. Because if you have those, there's a large chance those things are no good for you. Yes. And they're calling the shots without you even giving. Knowing it, yeah. Yeah, and maybe you know it, but you don't realize how much they're they're possessing Consuming. you. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to say it. They, they possess you. And that these are these dark type things. When I quit caffeine and you're the same, you don't do caffeine. No. The shock of how much caffeine is around. Yes. Is amazing. Yes. Absolutely amazing. Well, whenever you're getting rid of anything, yeah. it, you at that point, you start to take notice. You're like, okay, I'm consciously making a choice mm-hmm. to take this or remove this from my life. Yeah. And like caffeine, it doesn't need to be in soda. No. I get when it's naturally occurring. Well, there was like a coconut drink I had where it has like 0.5 milligrams of... It's a a water. It's like a flavored water. water, But they got to have like And they added caffeine. They added a little bit of it. And it very much... I mean, we get to addicts and addiction. Mm -hmm. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's safe. No. Well, and here's the thing. Again, it's moderation. But, but here's like, the thing you I hate moderation and I hate to hear it because yeah. like okay there was that whole backlog against high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. It's fine in moderation. Is it? Is it really? Yeah, no, because it's a good question. Go ahead and look at the things that it's in. It's in your food, it's, it's in your drinks, yeah. it's in everything. So there's no such thing as moderation. And yeah. when they're adding the caffeine or when they're adding the sugar and it doesn't need to be there, you have just gotten rid of the whole argument for moderation because, okay, yeah, that means I can't eat things, I can't drink things, so what am I left with? No, it's a good point. Yeah. And I just, I hate it, and I hate to hear it because, you know, we we did that step where we were like, you know, maybe we should very much limit our sugar intake. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead and look oh, at everywhere. what sugar is in because it's in literally everything. Yeah. And just by switching to no added sugar or mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say sugar free because I mean, they just don't add sugar, like granulated sugar. Yeah. They'll add a different sweetener. Well, and that's the thing is like if you're if you want to go low sugar, there's substitute sugars, but now you're looking at like, well, that substitute sugar is a hell of a lot worse than the sugar. Depends. You know, I mean, it could be, yeah. but but you gotta yeah. you gotta make all those choices with yes. it. Yes, that's where that's where I think cutting sugar is different than like caffeine, because like caffeine you can just blast out and you're fine. You can like you can you can drink water. You can. Yes. You know what I'm saying? You can you can maneuver around it i will say this though if you are going to quit caffeine cold turkey expect headaches oh yeah you can step down yeah which is what i do um if i have for example gone to dunkin donuts and ordered my decaf coffee and the stupid idiot who's sitting there is like ha 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 i'm gonna give her high test let me just tell you what caffeine actually does to my system my heart races at a beat that it shouldn't that's what i tell people that yeah are drinking a ton of coffee or a ton of caffeine because i'll see people now that just like chug energy drinks like they're nothing and 
Exactly. And the thing is, is the tolerance that is built up yes. on that is unbelievable. And yes. I say that because I joke around with people that I was like, if I had half of that can. Yes. And this is somebody who used to drink, uh, just as a disclaimer, this is somebody who used to drink four large cups of caffeinated coffee a day. Yes. When I was in IT working the grind, quote yes. unquote, I would have four large cups of caffeinated coffee a day. And just go through the day like nothing. Mm -hmm. But now if I were to have half of an energy drink, I would probably go to the hospital because yeah. I think I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. And it's just amazing to see the tolerance level as it's grown. Yes. But also what you see is the mood swings of yes. somebody who's drinking a lot, you know, who's consuming an above average amount of caf caffeine. Yes. The mood swings are unreal to see from someone afar. Yes. And the I'm way to compare it yeah. is, is like, you want to know the comparison of it without doing it. Be a designated driver for five of your friends when you go out, Oy. whenever the bar is open. Yeah. Be a designated driver. If you've never done it, it's a, it's a, it's life, an eye opening it's a experience. life changing experience, yes. but, but be a designated driver for five, six, whatever your friends and go out a night of drinking and hang out with them and do the duration. Yes. And hang out the whole entire night from, say, seven at night or one in the yep. afternoon till the early morning hours. And it's the same thing with caffeine, but you watch it every day and it's people functioning at their jobs. Yep. They're with their kids. Yep. They're just all over. And you look at this and, and you just, it's a whole different side of life that you see. Yeah. And circling back to all this, because you and I could rant about this shit. All Four, fucking ever. day. Yeah. But but that's where again, like with the suicide forest, it's to me, it's letting that dark monster in your life. Yes. And, You're letting it and win. And that that dark monster will promise you everything. Yes. And and that's where I look at this forest as that type of dark monster where it's just saying, Look, you come over here, nobody'll find you. Yeah. It's peaceful woods. Yeah. You can go in peace. Yep. And, you know, the trees fall over. Yeah. No Your harm, body will, no foul. Yeah, nobody will find you. And like I said, cause and effect. If you read, that was the interest, I that was the biggest thing I pulled from this was the police department. Yeah. And their work and efforts in this. And just the desperation they're at, at yeah. every single day. Because I can't even imagine dealing with that every day like getting called in every day yeah. or at least three times a week yep just either someone's found a body or there was someone that called and there's someone trying to and you got to go and yeah. grab them and just over and over and over again and no matter what you try no matter what you do they keep flooding in yes and then you get like i really felt so bad for them because they just they had that point where they had they had it under control. Well, they had a, a lid, a uh, lid yeah. near it, you know, a, a lid near, they just had it somewhat contained and they felt like they were maybe turning a corner mm -hmm. and then social media breaks out yeah. and it's just like a, they just poured gasoline all over it, lit it on yeah. fire and they got this whole just larger set of problems. Yes. And and it's it's a tough situation. It really I is. I mean, honestly, there's a part of me that wants to do an episode just on social media because of the 
just rampant negative impacts it has had on oh, yeah. society yeah. and the world. Well, I look at that. That's why I had to leave IT. Yes. I mean, I, I will formally come out and say that at this point. I, I realized working in IT that I, at one point I looked and I was like, I'm doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Even just working with companies and getting companies to function. Yeah. And, and it just... uh a big eye-opening experience for me and the company will remain nameless, but, but I remember just being in, I was in charge and my role to make sure that the company's safe, mm-hmm. the employee's safe and the customers are safe. Yeah. And that their data is not being taken away from criminals and their bank card information right, and stuff yeah. like that. So you, you assume this role where you're this kind of guardian of this information. Yeah, gatekeeper. Yeah. And then I remember sitting in a meeting and the chief and uh the chief information officer, CIO and some other directors and whatnot. We're in a meeting talking about how if you go into one of these shops or stores that they had. Mm-hmm they would have this network equipment, which by the way, every single store like big chain store does this, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Basically, if you log on to their wireless, they not only track your location in the store, which that I didn't have a problem with. Yeah. Because it's just the location. And for what the store wanted to know, they wanted to know, you know, where you shopped in the aisles, where the high traffic aisles were and stuff. So for marketing, I could understand that. And I, I was cool with that. But then they wanted to know what apps you were using on your phone. And how many, how long you were using those apps? Yeah. And were you using some of those apps in the store? And that I had a problem with mm-hmm. because that just is a slippery slope. Yes. To people. And when people accept, oh, I'm, I'm going to be on the wireless on here and you hit that yeah. accept uh, terms and all that. That's what you're accepting. You're accepting these companies to just look at every single all your bit information. of information that you're using for apps. Yeah apps you're using in the store, how much you're using them. I just had a and problem with it. it doesn't matter what your privacy settings are on your no, device. No, correct? it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And and that's where that's where I kind of had an awakening moment working in IT. And then from there it just got worse. Yeah. And especially social media started coming through and you know, people would comment negatively about the company and the company's like, "Well, how do we how do we get rid of this? And it's like, you don't, it's, no, you know, you either have it on there, yeah. y- you know, or you don't. And I remember a Reddit user, which was funny, or it was Craigslist at the time. And they had a Craigslist rants and raves. Yeah. And this was a different company I worked at. And somebody on the rants and raves said some really bad stuff about the company. And the problem was, is it was true. Yeah. And I knew it was true because I was working on the investigation team right, yeah. in that internally. And, and, I remember being in a, a room with the board of directors and the board of directors were asking, how do we get rid of that? And I'm like, it's Craigslist. Can't get rid Can't. of it. Yeah. I mean, now it's changed because you have. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into that whole dynamic. But but at the time, it was just like, yeah, no, you can't get rid of that. That's someone's free speech. That's someone's, yeah. you know, that's someone's right to say that on a platform that's giving them the right to say that, that A, we don't own. B, we don't control. Correct, yeah. You know, that's a company that can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. 
And they were just, well, how can we block it from people in the company and stuff like that? So I had to go and I had to block it from people in the company. Like, you know, they couldn't go to, yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. People don't want to believe that stuff's true, but it's, it's true. Yeah. And that's where, like, I just had this whole thing of, you know, I can't contribute to that anymore. I can't partake right. in that anymore. And, and that's where another another derailment on this subject, but where we were talking about does social media do good or bad, that's yeah. the tough part of it. Because social media does do some good stuff. If I mean, somebody, it does. You know, if somebody has cancer or something like that and you want to do a, a GoFundMe for them right. to get or money for it. if you want to network a bunch of people together for yeah, the greater good. It's a great I way to spread that. awareness for stuff like that. It but is. that same opposite side yeah. has that same ability right in in that yes. same way to organize in the same way to do mm-hmm. things and it's it's a tough it's a tough deal it really is it and, is and this is an example with the suicide forest where social media is you know social media and movies yes have made this popular can't say they've made it a great idea or whatever they just make it popular and that's yeah. all it takes yeah and and someone will just represented do it yeah and if somebody's looking to commit suicide I mean, the fact that Let's go over there and do it, the you know. fact that their uh, phone doesn't work either, because, you know, if they do have that moment of clarity and you do try to reach out yeah. for help, you can't. Well, and here's the other thing, too. You could just walk in there and injure yourself. Yeah. Never get found. Exactly. And that's where they say some of these deaths, they can't attribute to suicide. suicide. Either. Some of them. And, and some just of them are just people hiking how, and or wandering around because you have these theme parks nearby. Yep. And they're saying, hey, you know what? The forest is right over there. Let's check it out. Yeah. But it does. The treacherous terrain. Yeah. But it does have a weird scene to it. It does. And there's people that have pictures. And I'm going to share these, you know, it's stuff where you see bags of things and and they're near bodies, you know, and the the stream, the streamers, the strings and stuff like that. And, And they say that basically the author that I read, they said, if you go there the chances of you seeing a body are slim. Right. But it's not unrealistic. Right. And they say, if you go there every day for a week, they say, you're probably going to find something. Yeah. That's really, and that's really kind of profound. Yes. Considering the size of the place. Yeah. Because I've walked into the woods a ton. Yeah. I've been out in the woods a lot in my life, and I've never seen a human body. I know tomorrow... That'll probably change, <laughs> but I just way to go, Frank. Yeah, but I just never seen. It, it's it's even rare sometimes when you see just an animal carcass or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon, but yeah. So that's basically suicide forest. Um, we went on a hell of a tirade. We did, <laughs> but just don't. Yeah. At the end of the day, just just don't. don't. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. don't. And and again, to be very very passionate and serious about it, it's it's a really really tough condition to be in. And like I said, if if you um if you or anyone know uh that you know would like to talk to someone, don't hesitate to reach out for help. Again, you can visit h or uh, www.iasp.info. And um, you can find contact information for your country or just call your local emergency number. 
yes. and they can find somebody to to help you or someone that you're looking to help. They can give you um, good advice on on how to set out. So what do we have uh, going on next? We have the Mothman. I know. Yes. I know. Got some good ones coming up. So the first time you heard of the Mothman was probably the movie with Richard Gere, right? Correct. Yeah, same here. Now, here's the thing. I watched that movie, and I had no idea it was based on a uh, like a true account. I knew it was based on these stories. Okay. Um, and I don't remember how I heard it. Probably unsolved mysteries. Yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> so I, I did have some familiarity, but that actually brought it all home. Yeah, when I, I remember I first watched it, I was like, man, this is crazy. And and then I find out later that it was based on a true account. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. Yep. So I'm glad we're doing this because we have a, a variety of angles that we're going at. Yes. Um, this is definitely a wider breadth than what we did with the suicide forest today. It's uh, really, really good. So we hope you have a uh, a great a great week, a great weekend. Yep. Make good choices. Take care. <laughs>